If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We finally got an answer to the ranting we've been doing for months about the contact tracing data that we thought would explain how the coronavirus is spreading. It's not the answer we were looking for. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Happy Monday. Happy Happy Monday. Happy Monday. All right, Pep. We got one (laughs) week, one full week to go before the election. We're going to give it our all, and then that comes election Then collapse. (laughs) Yeah, collapse. Okay. (laughs) Let's begin. How many people in Cuyahoga County voted on the first weekend of early voting? Jane Cahoon, the photos told this story in ways that words cannot. People lined up so far down the street that they were going down the Chester on ramp and next to the interstate. Like One of the more dangerous things you've seen, but that is the vigor with which people wish to vote. So how many people showed up on the first Saturday and Sunday? It was really unbelievable. We had over 2,400 people on Saturday and more than 1,000 on Sunday when the voting window was narrower. It was just like, I think, four four hours that day. But uh, so far, over 33,000 people have been voting in person early since early voting started in Cuyahoga County. And they've gotten probably close to 220,000 absentee ballots, too. But you're right. It was just an amazing sight on Saturday with people lining up you know, all the way to that off ramp, the the police got that under control where that where they rerouted people so that they weren't dangerously standing, you know, on the freeway ramp. But but everything was orderly, you know, and and people were joyful and and all that. And some of them actually were happy in the early afternoon when they got a visit from Kamala Harris, who who stopped by to thank them and let them know that, you know, that how important their votes are and as we know, this is a heavily Democratic county, so she got a lot of cheers and and no apparent booze for that. But, you know, we, we also had a story about how efficiently the, the board has been handling these early voters. So, I mean, this was a challenge for them, but that they did seem to be ready for the onslaught. But, you know, it, it's inevitable when you have that many people and only one place to, to early vote that they're they're going to have to wait in a long line for a couple hours or yeah. whatever. So that part is kind of, you know, despite the joy of, of some people there, it's, it's kind of sad to see people have to wait that long. Laura um, this is Laura Johnston. So I was out running on Saturday morning when a friend of mine texted me a picture. She said, I'm waiting in line on 90 to vote. And I thought she was in her car, like that there was like a traffic jam to like get off and drive to the board. And then she sent me another picture and she's literally sat, standing on the side of the exit ramp. And I was like, Holy smokes. I I mean, I we've seen lines at the board, but we you know, we had this story, Courtney Astolfi reported it saying how smooth it was and most of the social media chatter I've said, you know, was that things move so slowly, but that was just astounding and then people kept going. So they're waiting two hours in line to vote. I, I wonder what it's gonna be like on election day 
I can't imagine people are going to have to wait two hours at their precinct, though. No, because everybody's going to have voted exactly. already. Exactly. My, my plan is to sell. Look, I, I want to emphasize what you said, Jane. We we gave the Board of Elections holy hell because of how badly they screwed up the the uh, poll worker problem where they sent out a note saying they have enough when they didn't have enough and couldn't couldn't get their facts straight. They have put together a system that is moving people way more efficiently than I would have thought possible. Uh, and why you're right that the police did move people to a safer place. It wasn't before that photo went viral. And what that photo said to people, Tim Ryan tw- tweeted that photo out with an expletive we won't say here saying this is BS because it's showing how difficult it is to vote. And that's the product of the legislature and Secretary of State Frank LaRose. It should be easier to vote. You shouldn't have to line up next to an interstate highway to cast your vote. And even though people were celebratory and Harris showed up to say good things, although I read somewhere that off mic, she said, am I in Cleveland? So (laughs) I I just I, I wish. We made it easier. I mean, we almost look it almost looked like what you see in third world countries where people are going up with a red crayon to vote. And it shouldn't be that difficult. Right. right. What's, what's interesting is, you know, we had all this discussion about the drop offs, you know, and and can we get six libraries and, and, and all the lawsuits? And I mean, maybe I'm missing something. But has anybody ever said, why don't we have more than one early voting site? That's been brought up before, but, you know, as Chris said, this legislature just isn't going to do anything to alleviate that situation. Because they're all Democrats. I mean, everybody in that line probably was voting as a Democrat and the people in the legislature are mostly Republican. They don't want the Democrats to vote. I mean, it's it's it comes down to party instead of country. It comes down to partisan bickering instead of democracy. And it's just not right. But I applaud everybody that showed up and I'm hoping they continue to do that. So when I go to my polling place on November 3rd, (laughs) I walk right in. Yeah, this week the hours are up until seven o'clock. They're going, I think it's from like 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. every weekday this this week, in addition to the, the weekend hours that they'll have next weekend. Yeah, you can find the details on Board of Elections websites and on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the new Ohio record for coronavirus cases, and how many times have we now broken that record in October? Laura Johnston, the, the Saturday number staggered me. I mean, I've been saying for a while, I think we're going to get up and pass 3,000. Traditionally, before a week ago, we never broke records on a Saturday. That was always a depressed number. But when it came out Saturday, it was shocking, so much so that our plans to get together on election night in our newsroom, I had to cancel them because I just we don't know how it's spreading and we can't risk getting people sick. Right. So the Saturday record was 2,858 cases. That was the fourth record in a row, starting with Wednesday at 2,366. So they we hit records every day from Wednesday through Saturday. Before that, we had hit a record the previous Saturday, the previous Thursday. And remember, this sounds like so long ago. Our first October record was October 9th with 1,840 cases, which I am sure we would be happy to see that number now. But this is not just cases that we have records on. Saturday was the fifth straight day. Ohio hospitals reported a record number of coronavirus patients. And this in a single week, patient count increased 24%, which is just astounding. You know, I've talked to people and no one seems to be able to say why it is spreading. I I keep conjecturing that it's 
forced air heat because what's the difference between now and a month ago? Well, we everybody turned their heat on. Um, home heating systems have notoriously weak filters. And if the virus lives, as long as studies are showing it lives, is that spreading it as people are in their workplace or in stores? Is this thing just bouncing around? Because because no one can explain it. You can't say three times as many people have gone indoors to eat at restaurants or three times as many people have stopped wearing masks. That's just not it. And it's something we're seeing across the world in, in the northern hemisphere. So you've got to wonder, is it is it the heat? The the sad thing is we had we had hoped for months that the state's contact tracing data would tell us how it's spreading. We've ranted and ranted on this podcast about this, that they've gone out and talked to a lot of people who have thousands who have the coronavirus. And we had presumed that one of the questions they asked was, how do you think you got it? Turns out uh, it took a while to get this answer, but we got it Friday. They're not, they, they have not been asking that question. What they're doing is saying, since you got sick, who have you been with so that they can go to those other people and stop it from spreading, which is laudable. But because of all of the questions we've asked, including on this podcast, they're changing their policy. They're going to start now asking people how they might have gotten sick and change the procedure going forward. I get it. I, I mean, you do want to stop the spread of this. That's got to be the priority. Uh, but I was I was sad to hear that that all these thousands of cases we won't get the data. They said that maybe in two percent of them do they have that, so they can't. That's that's not scientifically valid. So I don't know. How do you think we're going to find out how it's spreading? You guys have any ideas? Anybody <laughs> have gonna, a better? This is Jane Cahoon. We're going to get more anecdotes from the governor. Well, how are they even getting the anecdotes if they're not collecting <laughs> well, just, the information? No, they're not collecting. They're just talking to some of the local authorities, and and that's what what they're telling them. He's been talking about the informal gatherings uh, being behind this, but but Chris, you're you're right. I mean, this it just doesn't explain this tripling, you know, in cases. So yeah, something something has to explain this, and I'm I've been surprised that I haven't seen any any experts, any doctors, any scientists conjecture a reason. It, I mean, this is happening everywhere. Italy is back up into the into the stratosphere. You're seeing it elsewhere in Europe. You're seeing it across the Midwest. Somebody's got to have a thought. And look, after the 1918 pandemic, people were convinced that it was heating systems. I, we mentioned last week that a lot of houses built in the 20s, their heating systems were designed to heat their houses with the windows fully open. They were way overbuilt because heating fuel cost nothing back then and people wanted fresh air. <laughs> not not really a good answer for climate change, but but they, they kind of figured it out back then. We've got to figure it out now. Uh, I have a feeling that before the week's out, we'll cross 3,000, which is unfathomable. I just, you know, how does that keep happening? And like Laura said, hospitalizations are going up. The one number that hasn't ticked up is the death rate, which is good. Cuyahoga's positivity rate is, is starting to rocket up. Right. Yeah. We're going to go purple for state probably. Yeah, probably will. And that'll be the first time. And we'll have to see, you know, our school district sent out a note on Friday that said, we're still sticking with the hybrid plan, but there are a lot of school districts that are going back to remote right now even though the school numbers haven't shown that there are outbreaks in schools. But if you have outbreaks everywhere, it's inevitable. Yeah, it's going to be in schools. I, I think they made a mistake with purple. I think the, the virus, in its worst case, is giving us the blues. That should have been Category 4. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
This seems like the coronavirus election, but a whole lot of pressing issues will be affected by the winner in November's third presidential race. What are some of them? Jane Cahoon, normally in an election season, we do a whole bunch of issue stories, jobs, agriculture, environment, all sorts of things. But this year, it's all coronavirus all the time with a little dollop of social justice and Supreme Court debate. The, the next four years, all of those issues that we normally discuss will be affected by the winner on November 3rd. So we asked Seth Richardson to kind of show the line of demarcation between the two candidates. And not surprisingly, they have very different approaches. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, a couple of these issues that have been drowned out by the coronavirus, which affects every aspect of our lives. A couple of them actually did get discussed in last week's presidential debate, like climate change. But but you're right. There are so many others that affect us, especially here in Ohio, like the quality of our Great Lakes, our manufacturing base, our roads and bridges, education, student loan debt, you know, just to, to name a few of them. And as you said, there are real differences in, in how these issues would be addressed in a second Trump administration versus a Biden administration. You know, Biden, for instance, is much more focused on renewable energy uh, to to protect the environment and create jobs, whereas Trump isn't a big believer in climate change. And he's rolled back a lot of regulations on industry, feels those jobs are really important. And I mean, I could go on and on, but Seth really lays out the differences between these two on on a bunch of those issues. Well, and what we asked Seth to do, it was very challenging to do what we wanted him to do. We wanted him <laughs> to get the issues that, that are important that we're not discussing, lay out how each candidate approaches this, and then handicap it a little bit based on his wisdom and his experience. And he nailed it. I mean, it's just a, <laughs> it's a tremendous effort. There's enough information on each issue to really have something to chew on. He gives it perspective that is completely based on history and facts. And it's really a tour de force of uh, political writing in a year when we haven't talked a lot about this stuff. So check it out. It published in Sunday's Plain Dealer and it's on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the thought behind putting yet another 30 million bucks into the perpetually failing Global Center for Health Innovation, formerly known as the Medical Mart. Laura Johnston, this one, this one brought the news of this brought some comments from readers saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! What are they doing? They're going to spend another thirty million on this loser? What are they thinking? Uh, so, what are they thinking?" Yeah, I, I think when I saw this story, I was like, um, I, I told Bob Higgs, I said, make sure that we point out that we haven't paid off the $465 million original price tag of the Medical Mart and the Convention Center. But um, the Convention Facilities Development Corporation is the body that oversees the Convention Center and the Global Center, and they want to revamp the building into an extension of the Convention Center. So as we all know, in 2013, the Medical Mart opened as the showcase space for medical technology. It was a concept that sounded good, but never. No, it didn't. It never <laughs> sounded good. Well, I was throwing the flag on this one when Tim Hagen first brought it up back in the early 2000s, it was man. Like, right. You were like Disney World for doctors? I don't yeah, think so. No well, way. Yeah. So in 2018, they transitioned to a largely healthcare focused workspace, but that concept also didn't work. So now, after a year of, of study, they've concluded that 
$30 million in renovations would transform this and add more meeting space to help the uh, Huntington Convention Center better compete with facilities across the country. They say it would generate $110 million more annually in local economic activity by bringing in more meetings. Of course, that assumes that people are meeting again and the conventions business is picking up again after the pandemic. The first, so we're talking $30 million total. The first $10 million phase would include adding escalators between the atrium and the second and third floors, expanding restrooms, and adding staircases. If you've been in the building, you can see all four floors from this atrium, but they were designed to be showrooms. They weren't designed to be meeting rooms with people coming in and out all the time. And then the second $20 million phase would reconfigure the rooms on the upper floors to better suit them for conference use, upgrading audiovisual and electrical equipment. Now, you could argue this is idiotic given what's happened to meetings after the pandemic because so many people have learned now that they can have meetings virtually and not travel and not spend money on hotels, not spend money on airfare. But you got to think that that the meeting industry is forever changed in some way, that there'll be lesser demand for in-person meetings. What that is, no idea, but that's the point. No idea. Why would you spend $30 million on an old model without knowing what the new model is? I don't I don't get it. This, right. Is this the right time to kick in $30 million? Here's the other thing. This thing was a loser from day one. They stuck it into the public mind to get the convention center put through because nobody wanted to spend money on a convention center. This gave it like a sexy thing. It'll be like the Chicago Mart. And, you know, we had Kennedy and Hagen selling it. But it was never going to work, and it, and, it, and it failed miserably. Why not do an RFP? Why not say, okay, we got this four-story building in the middle of downtown that is costing us money. It's a loser. What ideas do you have for it that won't cost the taxpayers anything that might generate revenue in downtown Cleveland? And let anybody vote. You know, is there a museum that would want to take, take over it? Would it would be a good place to, to put boats because you're near the lake. Who knows? But why not? <laughs> why not say, hey, public, here's a here's a, you know, very attractive building in the center of downtown. What would you do with it? And how would it not cost taxpayers 30 million dollars? Have they ever discussed anything like that? Not that I've heard. I have not been attending these meetings, so we can check with Courtney. But it's not a bad idea. And you're right. It's in a prime location. It's, you know, right across the street from the Justice Center. It is attached to the convention center. You can walk under, you know, walk down into the convention center, which is mostly underground. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's questionable. They've been studying this since November 2019. So you think that they would be studying it during the pandemic and think, Maybe we should reconsider this, but um, right. Look what's happening at the IX Center. The IX Center is closing down because they don't see a future in the meeting industry the way it had existed before. So to to squander thirty million dollars, it just kind of boggles the mind. You know, I'm, I'm I Armin Budish, county executive, has not weighed in on whether he supports right. it. But the council president, Dan Brady, four square behind it. I mean, this count, the county council, which actually does not do a whole lot. This is the thing they get behind. It's like, let's spend $30 million on a, on a thing that has cost us nothing but headaches. We'll have to see where it goes. You're listening to this week in the CLE. 
Why did Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost file an Ohio Elections Commission complaint about disgraced former House Speaker Larry Householder? Jane Cahoon, this is the story that just keeps giving to the news industry. <laughs> you, We never run out of headlines about Larry Householder. Last week, we talked about how he was illegally using his campaign fund to pay huge legal bills so he doesn't end up in an orange jumpsuit. What does Dave Yost say? Right. This is this all stems from that, from householder spending nearly a million bucks on the lawyers defending him in this federal corruption case, which I should remind people is based on House Bill 6, the nuclear bailout that was that the feds say was passed with first energy bribery money. Sixty million dollars. Sixty million dollars. First energy bribery money. (laughs) Okay, so. It is pretty clear that that using your campaign money for a criminal defense is a no-no. So Yost took this first step of sending a complaint to the Ohio Elections Commission. But, you know, I say first step because the Elections Commission really doesn't have a lot of power as an enforcement body. In fact, they don't even collect a lot of the fines that they impose. So Yost is exploring whether there are other legal options to actually block this money from being spent. I don't know if he'll be able to do that or not, but that's that's what he's ex- exploring. So the the elections complaint would carry, it would be a first degree misdemeanor with up to 180 days in jail and a thousand dollar fine and versus the federal case in which householder could face like 20 years in prison. So Yo said he he realizes that this misdemeanor elections violation isn't going to be the biggest of householders problems, but he thinks it's important to hold him to account for, for disregarding the law. And he thought it was a great teaching moment, you know, for other politicians. Well, look, we conjectured that this was a calculated risk. Look, I'll take the misdemeanor hit so that I can spend a million dollars and get a first rate defense. I would think though, that you could get a court order enjoining him from spending any more of this money. So then if he violates it, he's in contempt of court. I mean, you, you, you can't just willy nilly flout the law. Eventually there is an accounting and a judge once you're, once you're before a judge can say, okay, you cannot do that. I'm ordering you to stop doing it. And if you do it, you go to jail for contempt of court. Uh, So good for Dave Yost. I, uh, Sometimes I wonder whether he's a listener to this podcast because he seems to act on things that we talk about. You're listening (laughs) to This Week in the CLE. I thought the Pinecrest Shopping Center was the latest great new thing. So why is it in so much financial trouble that it has a new owner? Larry Johnson, when that thing was going up, you knew it was going to cause other retail complexes to go under because it was going to suck up the stores that they have. You know, but it's but it's popular. It's the new thing. Why is it in so much trouble? Oh, it's one more thing you can blame on the coronavirus. Um, A New York-based lender gave the center $171.5 million in a loan uh, to the developers, and they now own it. It's called Square Mile Capital Management. They issued the loan in January 2019 so that Fairmont Properties and DiGeronimo Companies, which develop Pinecrest, could refinance their construction obligation. The pandemic hurt in-person resale, stores closed down for weeks, the lack of traffic to the stores hurt, and the restaurants and the hotel that's there, and there's a bowling alley as well, hurt their bottom lines. A few of the boutiques have closed down. And now the shopping center, which you're right, has some of the most high-end brands in Northeast Ohio, like Pottery Barn and REI and Vineyard Vines. Um, they're they're facing, they were facing foreclosure, so they transferred the property as a deed in lieu of foreclosure, and 
and now they don't have a lawsuit. Apparently, Fairmont is still involved, so shoppers aren't supposed to see a difference in the complex. But yeah, this makes you wonder what's going on with every other fairly new shopping center. Right. Does this forever change retail in which people have gotten so accustomed to ordering things online that they won't go back <laughs> ordering Maybe what, things online and then returning what they don't want in right, but, but it's you know the, the the fedex ups trucks are ubiquitous in every neighborhood now and that's a big difference from before the coronavirus maybe what pinecrest needs to do is go to the county council and ask for 30 million dollars <laughs> to remake itself say we'll put some meeting rooms in, yeah, right. in the back of our store can we have some money please yeah let's do that you're listening to this week in the cle Who wanted to line up help to arrest Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and try him for tyranny with the possibility of executing him? Now, this is so ridiculous that you can make jokes about it, but it's not that ridiculous, Jane, because there were people actually discussing doing such dangerous things. Apparently so. Uh, A Miami County man, he was from he is from Piqua, told police that he was contacted by I believe her name's pronounced Renee, Renee Turner, who's an activist who's been protesting DeWine's coronavirus orders. And during that call, this this man said that there was a plan to arrest the governor later that weekend, try him for some crimes and sentence him to a penalty that could include exile or execution. execution. And that was, yeah, according to the Ohio Capital Journal, they they first broke this story. And then State Representative John Becker of Claremont County, one of your favorite people, who, the guy who wants to have DeWine impeached and arrested, put out a YouTube video about this supposed plot, which which was interesting. It, but he, in this case, he condemned this. I mean, he said that he made it clear he doesn't believe in vig- vigilanteism or, or any of this stuff. And he was praising the guy who reported this as a hero. He he said, you know, his effort is strictly going through the legal system and the and the and the legislature that that, that there's no room for for this kind of talk. So, in any event, the state highway patrol is investigating this. And and Turner told Jeremy Pelzer she confirmed that she had talked to the man about this idea about placing the governor under house arrest, but she denied that she discussed any kind of specific plan like this. She she dismissed this guy as a dingbat. And, but she did say the highway patrol came to her house to talk to her about it and check on her temperament and what her plans were. Uh, I, I should mention here that she, she ran an unsuccessful writing campaign against DeWine in the 2018 Republican primary for governor. And she thinks that DeWine should be removed and she should become the governor for that reason. She, she thinks DeWine should be put under house arrest to protect him. That That's where she's supposedly coming from. Anyway, the governor was asked about all of this on Friday and he said, you know, look, we have people in every state who believe they can take the law in their own hands. And that's, that's not the way to go about things. As we know, there was a plot, a really serious plot against governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. And th- this doesn't look to be anything like that, but you got to take this stuff seriously. Do you know how wacky your plan has to be for John Becker to be the voice of reason? <laughs> I mean, he's saying, yeah, I don't believe in vigilantism. No, I believe in abusing the court system to carry out my whims. But for him to be the voice of reason, I mean, this is wackadoodle. I, I, you just wonder where this is all coming from. We haven't had things like this over the last 20 years. This is all kind of a new thing? And is it just the climate of the country where people are this whacked out 
that they're doing things like plotting to try the governor for tyranny and throwing up the possibility of execution or exile. It's just what kind of country are we living in? It's this week in the CLE. What are the ramifications of the cancellation of the big Ohio RV superstore in Cleveland in January? Lord Johnston, this story pains me because I hate the RVs. They are the bane of anybody who drives on the highway because they are always involved in traffic jams. So really, the idea that this show is canceled <laughs> might mean better highways for people like me that hate them. But this is bad news, right? This is not good news because we don't really know what's in store for all the other big shows that normally come to the IX Center, like the boat show, the auto show, etc. So Amy Gurton, she's the executive director of the Great Lakes Recreational Vehicle Association, which puts on this show, said they canceled to ensure the safety of dealers and guests. But the uncertainty over the future of the IX Center is not helping anything. Uh, she said she's hopeful that they could host a show later in 2021, perhaps outdoors. She said she also talked to the folks at the Huntington Convention Center in downtown Cleveland about possibly moving the show to that venue. So maybe they can park an RV in the atrium of the medical mart. <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, as we all know, the IX Center Corporation, which had operated the IX Center for the city for years, announced abruptly in September it was closing due to the downturn in the event business. And so the last major event they've had, it's 2.2 million square feet there, was February. So we don't know what's going forward. Uh, representatives from the RV show, the auto show, the boat show, Great Big Home and Garden show met with city officials to plead their case because they really want to be able to have a, events. But this doesn't surprise anyone. Um, the city has not gotten back to them. Well, and there have been stories that this has been the year of the RV as people mm -hmm. became afraid of the coronavirus, didn't want to go to hotels or Airbnb. They wanted to go in RVs because then you're carrying your house around with you. So this show probably would have been the highest attended in its history if they could carry it off. But of course, getting together indoors in the winter with the coronavirus out there is just too risky. So clearly right. they can go forward. They don't have permission for the, from the state right now to have trade shows, although they're asking the state for that because they think they can put in, in place guidelines to keep people safe. However, this, when they started talking in September, the numbers were way lower uh, statewide for coronavirus cases than we're looking at now. So I don't know what's going to happen with this, but um, the RV show apparently gets about 30% of annual sales for those dealers come from that show. So uh, they're probably not going to be hurting this year. Maybe the, the dealers will end up having their own thing and outdoors makes sense. But we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't tried to do it outdoors because they just need a big field and they could limit people going in to, to check these things out and they could still have have a show. Uh, you know, even if it snows, you could you could pull it off. I'm a little bit surprised they gave up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, that's going to do it for another discussion of the news. We'll have to see what happens today. Are we expecting another record today? Who, who wants to hazard a guess? I, I'm going to say no because it's a Monday, but last Monday we had the most Monday ever uh, number, so I'm going to go with that. Okay. I'll go out on a limb and say we're going to hit 3,000 today. Whoa. Oh. Okay. Well, tomorrow morning, we'll take stock of who is correct. Chris Warnowski will be back. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow.